0: is from John 3, 22 to 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anam, near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing, unless us it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him the one who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete he must increase but i must decrease this is the word of the lord Thanks be to you may be seated <coughs>
1: Well, if you have a Bible, open to John chapter 3, where we'll be this morning. And feel free to pull the sermon outline out from your uh, uh, bulletin that you got at the door as well, or pull it up on your phone to help you follow along. Well, today we are continuing our series as we head up to Christmas on John the Baptist, the one that God sent before Jesus to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. And today we're going to look at how John models for us what humility should look like what humility should look like. Uh, Humility matters greatly in our experience of God, in our experience of the Christian life, in our experience of this world. Humility helps us to be in relationship with other people. I'm wondering if you guys have ever been in a relationship with someone who struggled with humility. Maybe a parent, maybe a friend, maybe a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Please don't nudge anyone right now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER Somebody who is incredibly self-centered, who can only talk about themselves, who's never interested in what you have to say or your experience of the world. How hard is it to be in a relationship with that person? Or maybe sometimes we see ourselves in that. How hard is it for you, if that's what you struggle with, to be in a relationship with other people? Um, For us to have a meaningful relationship with another person, and especially for us to have a meaningful relationship with God, requires some level of humility, of us acknowledging that we're not the center of the universe, but God is. So how do we grow and develop that sort of humility? Today in our passage, we're going to see how John passes this tremendous test of humility. He is faced with this temptation that probably would take a lot of us down, this temptation of misplaced fame and improper power to cling to the prominence he once had rather than give it up for Jesus. And John passes this test with tremendous flying colors. And so the question comes, what's behind that? What makes John the sort of humble person who is able to succeed where so many of us would have failed? What makes him able to have this, this humility and this test of his character? And for you and I, like, how do we grow into that sort of people as well? Now, there's a line you'll hear in church sometimes, or I've heard a couple times. I think it's kind of a joke, but I'm not really sure. It's not funny, so that's probably why I'm not sure. Um, which is people say about humility, well, you don't want to pray for humility. You don't, that's something you shouldn't pray for because you never know what God might do to you if you pray for humility. You guys ever heard that? Uh, behind that assumption, well, it's a, a couple of wrong views. One, one is the view that um, God is just waiting for someone to foolishly pray for humility and then he's going to get them, right? Which is just a silly, childish, and mean-spirited view of God. But the other thing that's wrong behind that view of humility is the assumption that humility comes from shame. That humility comes from embarrassment. That God is just waiting to shame you into being humble. Like he'll give you a terrible scar on your face and you'll lose your job and that's how you're gonna grow in humility. As if shame and pain automatically leads to humility. It's actually a very different model we see with John of where humility comes from. We're gonna look in our passage at what makes John humble. And it's not shame, embarrassment, or ridicule that creates humility. Instead, it's contentment, self-awareness, and joy that bring about humility. Well, quick primer: If this is your first week here and you you haven't been here as we've talked about John the Baptist the last couple weeks, we're really glad you're here. Uh, Maybe you came to see your grandkids sing or uh, this is your first week here in Advent for whatever reason. Quick primer on who John the Baptist is, just to bring you up to speed. Um, John was someone sent before Jesus in order to prepare the way for people to hear his message. That's why we're talking about him at Christmas. It's because we still need that help listening clearly to what Jesus has to say to us. And John was sent in, miraculous, uh, in a miraculous way by God, from set apart from before he was born. A miraculous conception to elderly parents who are of priestly line. He was a special child. Uh, he was indwelt with the Holy Spirit from the womb, uh, the Bible says. And he had a weird life from the get-go. Weird being a very important theological term in this case. And the weirdness shows up in a really significant way in that he goes out into the wilderness. And on one hand, he's the most irrelevant person to Jewish society. He's opted out of the social systems, economic systems, the political systems of his day. And yet, at the same time, he's the most influential person in his generation. As thousands and thousands of people come out into the wilderness to hear what he has to say about God and a life of righteousness. According to John 10, he doesn't do any miraculous signs. He doesn't turn water into wine like Jesus does. He doesn't heal people. He doesn't call down fire from heaven, but he speaks clearly about the kingdom of God and people respond to him. The last thing you should probably know about John um, is that his whole ministry is oriented at people hearing Jesus. So last week we talked about how he's the one who baptized Jesus and who was there when God opens the heavens and speaks to his son. And now uh, we pick up John sort of after that moment. You know, John's whole story has oriented himself at preparing people for Jesus, and now Jesus is here. And so what happens to the appetizer when the entree comes, right? It gets pushed aside, and John is beginning to get pushed aside. And the people who had hitched their wagons to his now waning star are upset about it. And they come to Jesus, according to verses 22 and 23, and say... John, what are you going to do about this person who is stepping on your turf? Again, that's in the Greek, the turf comment, or who's getting on your corner? Um, You can hear it in their language, right? The one who was with you, the one who you spoke about, right? The one who should be on your side is now taking over your actions, right? He is baptizing, and you're John the Baptist. He's kind of taking your name, right? He's stepping all over your toes. I wonder how you and I would respond to that sort of loss of influence and authority. If we were in John the Baptist's shoes and people began taking over the very thing that seemed to define us and make us important in the world, how would we respond? What happens when Jesus takes over the influence and fame that previously had belonged to John? Look at how the disciples respond to verse 25. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And here's their problem. And all are going to him. What happened when John the Baptist's influence was threatened? You know, I hope that you and I can connect with this story too. This isn't just an ancient story, but this is a story that all of us are living at various times of our life. What, how do we respond when we don't have the fame, renown, influence, or credibility that we once had? How do we respond when we don't have authority that we once had? Um, this isn't just a, a story for a certain stage of life or a certain type of person. This is something that we all deal with not having the influence that we'd want to have, or maybe we felt like we used to have. How do we respond to a loss of authority? I, <laughs> I was thinking about this when I was walking through Cal State Long Beach a few weeks ago. I was thinking, you know, I used to walk through college campuses when I was a college student, and pretty girls would turn on me and smile, and now they smile at my kids, right? Um, Maybe you've experienced that. You know, maybe you used to have a lot of influence at your job, and now you're retired, and you feel like you don't anymore. Maybe you used to be the star high school quarterback, and now if you show up to a football game in your Letterman jacket, people think you're weird. I was at an event recently, and I saw a 40-year-old guy in a letterman jacket, and I thought, man, that's impressive. You're owning that. I, I, I want to wear mine. What do people say about you? Well, what do people no longer say about you that they used to? What do you no longer have? What accomplishments have you made that are now deemed irrelevant by society? You know, it's really difficult for us to lose authority, to lose power, to pass the torch. And for that reason, a lot of succession plans backfire. You guys know this, right? I I don't know if you guys follow football, but a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago now, um, the Packers had an aging quarterback named Brett Favre, and he was ready to retire. At least that's what everyone thought he should do. And so they drafted in the first round Aaron Rodgers, and uh, they thought, oh, this will be great. He'll pass the torch to this younger quarterback. The problem was Brett Favre didn't want to pass the torch to anybody. He was mean towards Aaron Rodgers behind the scenes. He ignored him. He slighted him. And uh, Favre refused to retire. And then when he retired, he came back. And then when he retired again, he came back again. It took him four times to retire for real. It's not just in sports, though. I mean, we saw that with The Tonight Show a few years ago when Jay Leno said he was going to retire and Conan took over, and then Leno unretired because it's hard to get out of the limelight. Uh, By the way, that's why it's one of the things that I admire so much about both Steve and Don, uh, two predecessors of mine here, that they uh, were so... uh, humble and kind about their own transition process? Well, we're going to look at the qualities that John displayed in his life that helped him succeed in a situation where so many of us would fail. Notice how John responds to the idea that Jesus is taking away something from him. Look at at how John responds to the suggestion or the the inference that he has something to be mad at Jesus about. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You know, at the beginning of John's journey towards humility is contentment. John the Baptist was content with what God had given him. And for us, humility comes from a similar place of contentment rather than rivalry. John's able to look at the authority he had for a season as a gift. And now a greater gift is being given to someone else. And if Jesus is receiving this gift, John says, it's because God has given it to him. Now, if John is going to be mad, he shouldn't be mad with Jesus, he should be mad with God because it's been the gift that he's envious of is the gift that comes from God himself. This is why coveting and humility are so at odds with each other. Coveting puts us in the place of entitlement and of greed. We tell God that we deserve something that somebody else has. But if we can take John's posture, one that our influence, our role, our authority, that it's a gift that is given Not earned, not deserved, but given from God. We can have an open hand when it's both given and removed. This is why coveting is so important in the Bible. This is why it's one of the Ten Commandments that we shouldn't covet. It's not because uh, wanting something is wrong, but it's that the act of coveting is telling God that he owes us something that we don't have. Uh, And for John, he's not going to engage in that. Rather, he's going to choose humility. Jesus has received what God has given him, and so who is John to be upset about it? John similarly received for a season what God had given him, and he was grateful. Man, this is what I would want for you, this sort of contentment, rather than resentment towards God. Because contentment, this is really important, I think. Contentment is a relational term, right? It's about our relationship with God. It's not a situational term. There's no situation that will make you content. Lucifer was in the throne room of God, and he was discontent. If Lucifer, Satan, can be in the throne room of God and be discontent, you and I can be in a bigger house with a better job and better health and be discontent. Right? Your contentment will never be established by your situation. It's always a relational quality in how we relate to God. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4. Contentment comes from knowing that the giver, God himself, is good rather than that our situation is good. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's that secret, Paul? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. For John and for Paul, for that matter, contentment melts away rivalry. And for us, it's the same thing. Contentment melts away rivalry. John's unconcerned that he's being marginalized. In fact, as we'll see in the rest of this passage, he's excited about it because he is content. And if you know Philippians, you know that Paul is similarly content. You know, it's easy for us to say, well, of course John should be content. It's Jesus he's passing the baton to. You know, in Philippians, Paul's passing the baton to some, I don't know, mediocre people. And yet he's similarly content because he finds his joy in what Christ has accomplished. You know, we know that John's reaction is exceptional and admirable because we know people who haven't done this, right? Maybe you can think of your own life or people that you know who have chosen rivalry rather than contentment. Leaders who are unwilling to let go and would rather the organization close than they lose their power. Business people who insist on their job continuing even as the company goes bankrupt. Politicians who refuse to retire even long after they've run out of ideas and energy to help their constituents. You know, this lack of humility at its core can come from a place of discontentment. Discontentment about what God has given and who God is giving to someone else. Now, you and I have a a challenge this time of year around contentment. In fact, there are a lot of forces at play that are trying to make you discontent Uh, Those are called advertisers, right? (laughs) You're being told that you must not have something that you need so that they can sell it to you. In fact, we do this to each other. I I called my parents this week and asked them what they wanted for Christmas because I I would feel like a terrible son if I didn't give them anything. And what did they respond with? Oh, nothing, You know, just a picture of your kids would be great. And rather than take that for like, oh, what a great virtue, how content you guys are. How did I respond? No, no, that's not okay, Mom. You need to choose something (laughs) that's of value between $50 and $100. And it needs to be purchasable on Amazon Prime, and you need to be very grateful for it, very discontent, <laughs> if I don't give it to you, right? And we do this to each other, right? We're, we're, we breed discontentment in our souls sometimes. I wonder how you're doing with contentment. Are you content about your body, about your body image and the influence you have? Are you content about how you're doing at getting into colleges that you're aspiring to? How much contentment do you have over how your kids or grandkids are doing? How discontent are you this time of year? You know, all of us, like John, have a choice. Like, are we going to have an open hand before God? That everything that is given is given from above, both honors and challenges. Or, like John's disciples, are we going to insist, look, whatever it is, it's mine, right? It's mine and no one else can have it and you can't take it away. Well, if we're able to have John's attitude, we can have an attitude of humility, How can you practice this? How can you grow in this? One practical suggestion comes from Romans twelve fifteen to rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, One way to sort of short circuit discontentment in your soul is to be happy with people who have the thing that you're hoping for, who have the reputation you're hoping for, the position you're hoping for. To rejoice with them. Now, if you're rejoicing with those who rejoice that have something you don't care about, that, that doesn't really help you, right? If you got the lead in the eighth grade play, and you know, I can be really happy for you. That's great, because I don't want the lead in the eighth grade play. Um, if, if you just won a video game contest, whatever this would be called, I, I'm happy for you, right? I don't play video games anymore. Um, so I, I can be happy for you. Now, if you just got asked to speak at some big pastor's convention, then it might be a little harder for me to rejoice with you who rejoice, especially because you're not even a pastor, and that's not fair. Um, <laughs> Well, th- those are my issues. I mean, you, you've, got your, you've got your own stuff. But um, when we rejoice with those who rejoice, it helps short-circuit discontentment in our soul. Now, of course, by itself, contentment doesn't bring humility. That's not enough. You, you can be content and not humble, but it is an essential part. Uh, the second part of humility that John models for us is self-awareness. Self-awareness. John the Baptist's self-awareness brings him needed perspective. The way that John's able to let go of his role... It's because he has a clear vision of who he is, and maybe more importantly, who he isn't. Look, look at how John corrects his disciples in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Right? Humility for John has a really important component, which is to know who he is and who he's not. And because of that, he's able to have an open hand with this rule. John doesn't mind having his influence threatened because his identity is secure. Because John knows who he is and who he isn't, he's able to handle having someone else take on this role, this role that other people thought he should have because he knows it doesn't belong to him. Man, this is freedom for us, right? If you know who you are and who you aren't, you're able to let go of the expectations that other people bring to you. This is the journey of self-awareness to be able to identify at a core level who we are and who we aren't. Now, our culture is obsessed with self-awareness. I think it's fair to say. There are so many personality tests that promise to tell you who you are, right? You could take the Myers-Briggs, you could take the Enneagram, you could take the DISC, you could take the Core 5, you could take on and on. And I love them all, right? I'm here for all of those personality tests. If you wanna tell me what your Myers-Briggs is, let's talk about it. If you wanna tell me you're a golden retriever, that's awesome. If you want to tell me whichever one is really critical, I don't want to hear that. But um, I, that's not the sort of self-awareness I'm talking about here. For John, his self-awareness is his awareness of what God has called him to do. That phrase, I am not the Christ. Christ is an uh, Aramaic term that refers to the anointed one. The Messiah refers to the one who has been anointed by God. I'm sorry, I said Aramaic. The Greek, the Greek term that means the anointed one. Um, For John, he's aware that God has not commissioned him or called him to the role of being Messiah. And commissioning is a really important uh, process of knowing what Jesus has made us to do. This is a long process, a lifelong process maybe, to figure out exactly what God's commissioned us for. But once we acknowledge it, once we notice it, once we recognize what God has made us for, we're able to slough off the expectations that other people bring to us. And that process of commissioning can change our whole perspective. And as Christians, we believe our our commissioning is to make disciples in the name of Jesus around the world. That's what Jesus told us right before he left earth. And commissioning can change our perspective. There's a story uh, told in a book called Shepherd Leadership by Bruce McCormick about Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Auerbach. I have to read that every time because I I don't know anyone named Shlomo. Um, But he was a rabbinic scholar from Jerusalem in the late 90s and early 2000s, and uh, he tells a story in one of his books about parents who came to him one time. Um, They came seeking his counsel about removing their mentally handicapped son from their home and putting him in a special school. It was an understandably gut-wrenching decision for any parent to make, and these parents were seeking the wise counsel of the rabbi because he was known for his both intellect and kindness. How could they show love to their son in this difficult decision? And halfway through the conversation, the rabbi shared their concern that the child would feel more betrayed than nurtured by his parents' actions. So he called the boy to him, and he did something that surprised the parents. He asked the boy, what's your name? And the boy responded, Akiva. And the rabbi said, how do you do, Akiva? My name is Shlomo Zalman Auerbeck. I am the greatest Torah authority of this generation, and everybody listens to me. I've always wanted to start a sermon that way. Um, (laughs) Well, the the parents were a bit shocked by that proclamation because the rabbi was known for being a very humble man, but he continued, You're going to enter a special school now, and I would like you to represent me and look after all the religious matters in your new home. I shall now give you rabbinical ordination. This will make you a rabbi. And I want you to use the honor wisely. Following his rabbinical ordination, Akiva went to his new home, listen to this, with a fresh sense of identity and mission. He flourished at the new school and rarely wanted to leave the campus, even for a weekend, as there may be a question from someone that needed to be answered. Such is the power of commissioning given from a leader to a follower. Commissioning is so important, and if it's important from a rabbi, To a boy, how much more important is it from God to us? What we are commissioned to and our acknowledgement of commissioning changes our entire perspective on our identity and on humility. John had that. He understood what he was made to do. So John uh, grows in humility from self-awareness. He grows in humility uh, from his um, contentment. And then the third way he grows in humility is through joy. Now... This might surprise us on the surface because we often think, like I mentioned at the beginning, that humility comes from pain or shame or embarrassment. Like we need to be beaten down into humility. That's not the Bible's view at all. Uh, as we see in John's life, humility comes not from pain, but from joy. Uh, not, it doesn't come from shame, but from joy. John the Baptist finds joy in the mission of God, and that enables him to be humble. The way that John comes to humility is through joy. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Listen to this. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Man, how, how much would you like that to be your life? That when you're met with moments of humility, you respond not with embarrassment or loss or shame, but with joy. For John, he compares himself in this parable to a wedding, and he thinks of himself as the best man, the one whose very role is to help facilitate the wedding happening. Uh, In our culture, in the Middle Ages, the concept of groomsmen comes from uh, the the men who were assigned to protect the bride from being kidnapped. So the best man was the best swordsman, the one who was there in order to help protect the bride. And every time at a wedding I tell groomsmen that, um, they perk up. They're like yeah, I'm here to serve the couple, to serve the bride. And then I tell them, well, put away your swords. W- what are you going to do? <laughs> but at least what you're going to do, guys, is point your toes at the bride. And everywhere she goes, groomsmen, you just point your toes at the bride because everything is about serving this couple today, not about serving yourselves. And I've never had a groomsman who said, no, no, today's about me, right? <laughs> no, they, every groomsman's there to celebrate the fact that this couple is getting married. And John's saying in the same way he's here, to be able to help and facilitate God reconciling with humanity. And there's joy in that for him. When we are celebratory and joyful about the mission of God, it is easier for us to let go of our selfish ambition. And that joy leads us to humility. And like John, we rejoice, or we should rejoice, at the way that people come to know God, whether we're a part of that or not. Whatever role we have in introducing people to Jesus, we can celebrate that the introduction has happened. You know, in the last couple weeks, our church has been part of something called Angel Tree that Prison Fellowship puts on. Uh, prison Fellowship is a ministry our church supports that uh, helps people in prison come to know Christ and create a different life after they get out of prison. And so one of the things that our church gets to do every Christmas time is buy Christmas presents on behalf of prisoners in prison, and then in consultation with a the guardians and parents who are outside of prison, help facilitate kids getting Christmas presents from their parents who are incarcerated. And our church donated hundreds of Christmas presents this year. So thank you guys for doing that. And guess who's going to get credit for that? None of us, right? None of, none of the cards are going uh, to say, To little Jimmy from your parent in prison, and also Kathy, right? No, it doesn't say that, right? It, we're anonymous in this process, but we celebrate because God is known, right, that, that reconciliation can maybe happen between kids and their parents, and because they know that it comes from a church of people who love Jesus that wanted this to happen. So whether we get credit for it or not, it's not the point, but that God gets credit for it. In the same way, some of you guys are investing in kids and youth, either financially and giving to this church or by volunteering. They're not your kids, maybe. They're not your grandkids, but you want to invest in seeing kids come to know Christ. Thank you for that. Um, in a few weeks, we'll have Christmas Eve services in here. And hundreds of people will come that, that don't come to church the rest of the year. And some of you guys will have prominent roles up front leading singing. Some of you will help with the security team or behind the scenes. But we'll all celebrate together that people are coming to know God. You know, there is a big difference between desiring fame and desiring the mission of God to come about. Right? There's a big difference. And John really accentuates that difference. Right? The mission of God is coming, and his fame is decreasing which one would you be more happy about? For him, it says, for John, he says that he has to decrease and Christ has to increase. This doesn't mean that he's depersonalized. It doesn't mean that there's less of John, but it means that his prominence has to go down, that he has to become less famous as a result. But because John's life is marked by contentment, it's marked by self-awareness, it's marked by joy, he's able to embrace that coming humility. What about for you? How are you doing at those three things? How would people close to you say you are at being content with being self-aware and with being joyful? John was content knowing that everything came from God. John was self-aware knowing that uh, he was doing what God had sent him to do, and he was joyful knowing the mission of God was advancing. But you know what? Even, even though John exemplifies these things, they pale in comparison to Jesus, because Jesus is the even better John the Baptist. Even though John is able to be content at losing some of his fame, Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, is content even to the point of death on the cross. John is self-aware, knowing that he's not the Messiah, but Jesus perfectly is self-aware, doing everything that God the Father has called him to do. And John is joyful. But you know, the Bible says that uh, Jesus, despising the shame, endured the cross for the joy set before him. Jesus decreases even to the point of dying, on this, dying a death that we deserve for our benefit. Well, a couple questions for you to reflect on about this week. One, um, God, where do I need to grow in contentment with what you've given me? And, and if that's sort of hard to get your mind around, you might think about the opposite. God, where does coveting reveal discontentment with you? God, where am I mad at you? Where am I resentful towards you? Can we, can we talk about this in prayer? And then secondly, in what ways am I pretending to have gifts, abilities, talents, and strengths that aren't from you? In what what ways am I burning the midnight oil? Am I busy? Am I worrying? Am I hiding? Because I'm trying to pretend to be someone I'm not. And then third, if I'm honest, God, how much joy does the advance of your mission bring me? And does that fluctuate based on the credit I receive? And if, if that's the case, is that really joy in the mission of God or is that joy in our own fame? I hope that John's example of humility will inspire you, will encourage you, and will help all of us to see what it means to follow Jesus better. Let's uh, close our time in prayer. Jesus, um, we're thankful for the example of John the Baptist. We, we are thankful for the way that he prepares us to see you clearly. And like John, we want to see you increase, even when it means that we decrease. God, forgive us in, for all the ways that we've engaged in rivalry and deceit, in gossip, in apathy, rather than the joy of the advance of your mission. God, I pray for my friends here, would you give us all humble hearts, not born out of shame, but born out of love for you, rather than our prideful hearts? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.